It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. All right, let's nurse. Okay, this is Apostle John L. Solomon, the Lion Among Lions, in the Lion's Den. My purpose today is to bring you strength. I got booted off the air. Hey, but that's okay. I'm back, and I'm doing my thing. So you just bear with me as we go through. We, we've done all the preliminaries. I guess I was doing it off air. But today, I'm talking about racial harmony. Racial harmony. It's important that we have discussions. It's important that we discuss things that, what, what, the elephant in the room, if you will. It's important that we discuss that, the elephant in the room, things that make us uncomfortable. There are times we need to find out, why am I uncomfortable? Why am I uh, not feeling good about this? It makes a difference. And that's where we need to come together and have a discussion because we all, we, have all have a view. View. we all have a view. Okay. Echo. Listen, we all have a view about what's going on, how we feel, what we think. And your view is very important. And I did racial harmony because I was talking with the creator and um and I was just you know, sharing some things with my heart about people and relationships and some things that I've encountered. And and I was thinking I may not be the best one to talk about this show because 
I've had some terrible run-ins with policemen that have left me scarred and warped and totally uh, in an opposite direction. But I also uh, have friends I have friends that I meet in the middle and we discuss things. And so racial harmony, as I was talking to God, it came up that racial harmony is a day in Singapore. And it was, yes, it's today, the 21st, but that was yesterday then. And where they come together to um, teach their children about the importance of looking out for one another in a multicultural and a multi-ethnic society. So by having a racial harmony day, they're believing they can avoid misunderstandings and conflicts of different races and make their country a more democratic society. And it's possible if you start early. You have to start teaching. We, We know you start teaching things, the earlier we can grasp concepts and they grow up with us. You can be no one is taught. You can be taught to hate, just like you can be taught to love. I'm gonna say that again. You can be taught to hate, just as you can be taught to love. Uh, in 1964, there were racial riots in uh, Singapore between the, the Malays and the Chinese. So they do this to teach students the importance of maintaining racial and religious harmony in Singapore's in Singapore. So I think that's that's important, but you know, but some of the people there they look at it like some people in America look at Black History Day, like you know, it's just one month that we go on. But I think you have to have that to bring people together. You have to have that so that you can discuss those things. I want you to hear uh, Dr. West for a few minutes as he talks about uh, harmony, as he talks about race. He's a professor at Harvard. Uh, Listen here for me. Sunday's off to Norfolk Prison. I was taught there for three years. In fact, when I first got back to Harvard two years ago, I went to Norfolk Prison for the first time in 45 years. And I was hit so hard to see my dear brother Richard, the same brother I had been going to see 45 years before he's still there. Gray hair walking with a stick. We just shed tears. I say, Brother Richard, you a stronger human being than I am. You wrestling with the same question. What does it mean to be human? Because each and every one of us, as Franz Kafka reminds us, have a death sentence in space and time. And in that sense, we're on a continuum with our precious and priceless brothers and sisters of all colors, disproportionately chocolate, incarcerated. That human continuity that links us, our fate, our sense of a future. And so I always remind myself the degree to which I'm just a moment in a tradition, a contingent extension 
of a heritage. And yes, I do come from a people who have been terrorized for 400 years and yet has taught the world so much about freedom. At our best, Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, Sojourner Truth, refused to terrorize those who had terrorized us. And you and I know if the dominant form of black leadership had been one of counterterrorization against the vicious forms of terrorization coming at us, there would be no America. There would have been civil war every generation. There'd be terrorist cells in every chocolate side of town. But no black versions of the Ku Klux Klan became the dominant form of leadership in terms of wrestling with this question of what does it mean to be human? A lot of times I just go to different context and I tell my vanilla brothers and sisters, I say, when you see black people, you ought to just give them a standing ovation. <laughs> just give them a standing ovation. It's true. Thank you for not opting just to terrorize back. Thank you for attempting to ascend to a higher moral and spiritual ground as you had to deal with 244 years of white supremacist slavery where the average slave would be dead at 27 years old, torture every day from sun up to sundown, and yet there labor would produce the wealth, which is the precondition of the mark of the democracy with the fundamental presupposition and precondition, which is, of course, our precious indigenous brothers and sisters and their land, their children, their women, their men. So let us never, ever say that slavery was America's original sin. That's just a typical neoliberal gesture <laughs> of trying to understand race as simply a democratic deficit. No, it was the treatment of indigenous people, which is the original sin, which means America begins as empire rather than democratic experiment. Okay. Very important starting point vantage point to understand how you talk about the constructions of race and how they change over time the various iterations and elaborations and articulations of this dynamic concept of race always already connected to empire always already connected to predatory capitalist expansion, always already connected to forms of patriarchal practices, on and on and on, the homophobic practices, the transphobic practices, losing sight of the humanity of Jewish brothers and sisters and Arab brothers and sisters and Muslim brothers and sisters. We could go on and on and on. And this is not PC chit-chat. This is Veritas, a quest for truth. And the condition of truth is always to allow suffering to speak. In our individualized 
in our community, in our precious experiment in democracy, in our imperial journey, allowing truth to speak. That's one reason why the very anthem of black people in this country is what? Lift every... Exactly. Lift every voice. It doesn't say lift every echo, does it? We're not talking about imitations and copies. We're talking about people trying to be originals, distinct, singular, finding their voices just like a blues woman and a jazz man. You, you can't hit the stage if you haven't really found your voice. And William Butler Yeats is right. It takes more courage to deep, dig deep into the dark corners of your own soul than it does for a soldier to fight on the battlefield. That's how you find your voice. 400 years of being hated individually, systemically, chronically, institutionally, and yet the best of the black tradition is what? Teaching the world so much about love. I could just turn on John Coltrane to Love Supreme right now and sit down. <laughs> just, just, just let you take it in. I thought that was a very powerful portion of his speech. When he's saying we're teaching about love, so many people want to hate. L love does not mean weakness. Love doesn't mean I just take everything thrown at me. But love means, hey, we have to talk. We have to come to a commonality, an agreement somewhere that we do hold these uh, these beliefs that all men are created equal. So I really wanted to get this episode off. We've had plenty of challenges facing putting this episode out. Uh and I'm going to come back with it more polished, of course, but I just want to give it to you raw. There's some challenges, even broadcasting or dealing with race when you're in the middle. If I was on the other side where, oh, I hate all white people, or if I was on the other side, I hate all black people, then, you know, it's, it seems like it's easier. Hate is easier. But love has to summon the courage. Love has to have courage to say, hey, I'm not going to disrespect this person based on the cultural barriers that I see. Um, I, was, I took a class, and we had to watch this video called White Like Me. And I learned so much from a white man that he shared. And I wrote, well, a, a, a person <laughs> wrote an op-ed. But don't worry about cancel culture. I won't be canceled. You know, my sponsors are not pulling out. Lady Lisa Jerry Boutique, Azalea. Tomato, <laughs> they're not pulling out on me. They're going to continue to support. So don't worry about me being canceled because anytime you talk about race as a black man, people immediately think, oh, you put, you, 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 you're going to bring some hate speech. You're going to do a guilt trip. It's not a guilt trip. It's facing the reality of what has happened, where we are now, and what are we going to do about it? The question was presented in my class, will racism always be a part of America? And I said yes. Because it's profitable. It's business. Racism is a business. It, you know, 
it, the white supremacists, they pro- they began with hate, but it has evolved into a business whereby if I can continue to divide you guys, I can financially profit. Now, you two that are fighting, or you three, or you four, or you racists fighting against each other, when it, when the smoke clears, if y'all go and have a war, guess who's going to come out on top? I'm not going to say, but you know. If I say, I might get canceled, but I am not going to say. So we have to come together and say, look, I love, I, I don't care what your political, I don't agree. I may not agree with everyone's political views. I don't give a frick, flip, flip, flop. <laughs> I don't care what you politically believe. I've had some uh, people who were, uh, what, a part of a political party who helped me out incredibly on both sides of the aisle. How John McCain said, I, I reach across both sides of the aisle. I'm a maverick. <laughs> I like that guy. But what what I'm saying is, we have to come, we have to learn how to uh, love each other. Uh, my book that's coming out, Rooks the Fox. Your significance is your difference, and because you're different, you bring something to the table that I do not bring. And I learned that in school. Man, I learned a lot in school. I learned, you know. I don't know about y'all. y'all went, I'm not talking about high school. <laughs> high school, oof, that was a wash. But as I went back to higher education, higher learning, secondary school, I, I learned a lot. And it has helped me to grow and to progress as a person. Now, I don't, and I make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. It's not in making, it's not in making mistakes that you're wrong. It's, it's you're wrong when you make a mistake, realize that you're wrong, and refuse to change after the knowledge has been dispensed unto you. That's when you're in trouble, and you're going to continue to perpetuate a cycle and share that energy, that same knowledge, with someone else who will become even more ignorant in their folly and fallacies as they go forward, not being able to be or live up to the potential of the person that they truly can be. I want you to hear a portion of this that this man dropped. It was real. Just listen to this. When I was in high school, we read John Howard Griffin's classic book, Black Like Me. In the book and in the movie version a couple of years later, Griffin, a white man, tells the story of how he darkened his skin with dye, medicine, and intense UV rays in order to experience what it was like for African-Americans in the pre-Civil Rights South of the 1950s. Well, what's the big idea? I want to find out what it's like to be a Negro in the South. You can... Over the course of six weeks, Griffin recounts how he was harassed, followed, and threatened by racist whites. You better find yourself another place to set. And in the end... He says that his assumption blacks were treated like second-class citizens turned out to be wrong. It was closer to 10th class. You know what we do to troublemakers here? No. Kill a nigger and toss him one of these swamps, and nobody ever know anything about it. The book became a bestseller and a sensation, and it had a profound impact on me and countless other high schoolers. But when I revisited the book as an adult, something stood out that I hadn't thought about as a kid. Toward the very beginning of the book, Griffin asks, how else, except by becoming a Negro, could a white man hope to learn the truth? Ultimately concluding that the best way to find out if we had second-class citizens and what their plight was would be to become one of them. 
white southerner has to know what it's like to be a Negro. Really know. And you know what it's like, huh? After ten weeks or three months or whatever it is, you know. No, I don't know. And I can never know. Rereading this, I realized the entire premise was off. Griffin was attempting to understand racism by momentarily occupying blackness. He became a person of color. And while there's no question there's real value in whites trying to understand and ultimately empathize with the experience of African Americans, it struck me that we rarely, if ever, turn this line of thinking around. In other words, instead of asking what it's like to be black, what if we just asked what it's like to be white? I don't really know how what it means really to be white or what it's supposed to mean. I guess I never really thought about it, but it was always kind of a negative thing. When I ask students what it means to be white, what I hear from them is a lot of confusion. The question, what does it mean to be white, um, it's, I, I, it baffles my mind. I don't know what it means. Whiteness isn't something we think much about, and in some ways, that makes perfect sense. In terms of white culture, it's very general and very vague. Like I think, like, hmm, sitting down and having dinner with my family. But all cultures do that. Because when you're part of a dominant group, you're not forced to spend a lot of time thinking about how you fit in or about how your privileges as a member of the dominant group might affect others who don't belong to it. In order to express ourselves, we don't have to fit into black culture, Hispanic culture, Asian American culture. We can just kind of do what we want. Um, and I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just... This doesn't mean that all white people have it easy or that there aren't differences between the struggles of poor and working class white kids who have to work for everything and rich white kids who have things handed to them. Of course, those differences are real. But none of that changes the fact that throughout the history of this country, being white has been far easier than not being white. Oh God, I love being white. I really do. Seriously, if you're not white, you're missing out because this is thoroughly good. <laughs> it, and, but let me be clear, by the way, I'm not saying that white people are better. I'm saying that being white is clearly better. Who could even argue? <laughs> if it was an option, I would re-up every year. Oh, yeah, I'll take white again. Absolutely. I've been <laughs> enjoying that. I'm going to stick with white. Thank you. And let's face it. There's no denying that white people in the U.S. have had privileges throughout history that people of color simply haven't. Consider the very first law passed by Congress after ratifying the Constitution, the Naturalization Act of 1790, which said that free white persons and only free white persons could become full citizens of this country. Basically, our very first law as a constitutional republic gave white immigrants privileges that black people and immigrants of color and indigenous Native North Americans weren't given, all of it based purely on skin color. And whether we want to acknowledge it or not, this kind of systematic white privilege and race-based favoritism is built into the very foundations of the country. That's pretty deep. And like I said, that's not to push guilt, but that's for us to really look at it. One, on one of, the, um, one of the meetings back in 63, the Church on Racial Harmony, it was at a Catholic welfare conference, National Catholic Welfare Conference. They talked about racial justice and religious questions, and they, you know, they discussed it. But they, they, they came up with positive steps toward racial harmony. And that's what we have to do. 
because we know the problems. We see them. And we are trying to find a consensus. Consensus. But when you have people who stoke the flames of racial unrest and when you have people who continually divide us with propaganda and agendas that do not benefit us, we find, we find ourselves continually to look side-eyed at each other because we're different. And those differences carry over not just in race but into other areas, uh, women, disabled people, older people, um, uh, LGBT. And th- this uh, racism or this, these isms divide us. And as we constantly look into them and, and give in to them, we find ourselves uh, looking at a lot of people, avoiding a lot of people and thinking that this person is okay, but that person is not. And we don't even know them. Our stereotypes and our prejudices have to be addressed in a public forum, yes, but we have to address them directly within our own self. That's where it begins, which I'll tell you about a little later, but one thing that was that came out that I that really stuck with me is said to do this to find positive steps toward racial harmony, we must talk openly and sincerely and calmly about our mutual problems and concerns. There are many ways in which such meetings can come about peacefully and naturally and fruitfully. You can try to do that and eliminate the bad apples that would come would want to come and distort what you're doing. You know, and, and that's where it begins. Our important task is to break down the barriers that have caused such grievous misunderstandings and horrific crimes and to see if we can uh, deter those. That's what we want to do, and that's what we should do. One thing that I always learned from my, my dad was to treat people right, you know, he wasn't a perfect man, alcoholic, but he believed in, he loved people, and his love for people always caused him to go above and beyond certain areas for people, you know, and I think my, my love spilled over into children. I love children. I don't care what color, creed, Martian, alien, good, quote, bad, whatever. I, I, I think they are, they are the future, and as we teach them uh as we teach them unity, as we teach them to uh, that not that dog eat dog type of stuff, that's how we're able to overcome. It, you know how they say one student at a time, but it, I know I know that may be a slow pro- process, but eventually it'll work in the in one way or another. But we have to, if not just if not, but just in our generation or in our circle. My circle is not going to give in to that hate. My circle is not going to give in to that division. I remember being in boot camp. I got into a fight with several Puerto Ricans, and I concluded, included them in my way. First, I got into, I would get in an argument with these Texans, so I concluded in my mind, something wrong with Texas folks. My first accident in my car was with this young lady who was from Texas, so I had a bad taste in my mind about Texans. Now, what's my favorite Sports teams, yes, Texas, Cowboys, you know, anyway. And then it came to, I got into it with some Puerto Ricans, and I've gotten several fights with them. And so I had concluded, you know, they mean, 
But then guess what? Here I am in 2020. My daughter, that's right, she's part Puerto Rican. See, you don't know how things are going to play out when you have stereotypes and prejudice. It's ironic how those backlash, those things backlash in your life. Now, over the years, you know, I reconciled and, you know, and I, I love, I love the culture. I, I love uh, Puerto Ricans, Hispanic, Latinos, essays, vatos, you know, I, I've, I've come to embrace their culture, you know, and so and that's what you have to do. I don't know. You have to shed those stereotypes. And uh, this op-ed that was written by this person, very brilliant, incredible, intelligent person, his eyes was opened about something. He's not completely there yet, but it's a start. And I want to read this to you. And he writes, the change I want to see must first begin with and in me. I must rid myself of sexism. Women are not explicit. It's an explicit word. And objects of degradation placed here to respond to the sexual and uh, underscoring needs of men. They are human beings with minds, feelings, and values that must be respected. The change I want to see must first begin with and in me. I must rid myself of racism, other ethnicities, uh, Caucasians, Asians, Indians, Native Americans, Hispanics, Middle Easterners, as a whole, are not out to get me. Even as even as it appears as such to some, I must not embody and internalize that view. Other African Americans are not niggas ready to kill and hate on me. Even if, even as it even. If it appears as such to some, I must not embody and internalize that view. These ethnicities and those of my own race are human beings with minds, feelings, and values that supersede the color of their skin and therefore must be respected. The change I want to see must first begin with an enemy. I must rid myself of homophobia and uh, sexual discrimination. The LGBTQI community is not a group of foul, immoral beings who are driven by freakish sex and determined to take over the world by displacing nuclear family values with their agenda. Even if it appears as such to some, I must not embody and internalize that view. These individuals are human beings with minds, feelings, and values that must be respected. The change I want to see must first begin with an enemy. I must rid myself of ageism. Older adults are not feeble, incompetent folk in the way of our progressive youth-driven society, eating away at Social Security funding and binging on Medicaid and Medicare. They are human beings with minds, feelings, and values that have propelled the societies in which we now relish, raised sons and daughters that now lead the way and must be indoctrinated or assisted with the changes of today when possible and therefore deserve to be respected. The change I want to see must first begin with it in me. I must rid myself of religious prejudice. Jews, Christian, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, agnostics, etc., atheists are not less than because they choose not to worship or do not worship as I do, or not less than and deemed subject to insult or ridicule. These individuals are human beings with minds, feelings, values, and a right to their free will that must be respected. The change I want to see must first begin with me, with and in me. I must rid myself of xenophobia. Immigrants from other countries coming to my native land are not my enemy here to take away my jobs and pulse upon 
made their language and culture and distort my way of life. These individuals are human beings with minds, feelings, values, and many seeking a better life in our land, a vast opportunity that must be respected. The change I want to see must first begin with me. I must rid myself of looking at disabled people as if they don't belong, as as if they they don't need to be here. They are capable. They are competent. They're able to sometimes do more and go further in spirit, heart, and mind, and soul than people who are, quote, normal, unquote. These individuals are human beings with minds, feelings, and values, and many have struggles that they don't even talk about or tell anyone. They must be respected. Our personal stereotypes and prejudices that more than likely have hindered us from being connected to some of the greatest people this world has to offer who will make an incredible impact on our lives. Moving forward, if we would adopt into our spirit the changes I want to see in this world must first begin not with protests from my awakened anger. That will come. Not from acts of insolence that stir my passions. That too will come. And not from confrontations that thrust me to the front lines of resistance. That also will come the closer it hits to home. But the change I want to see must first begin with and in me. As I must first rid myself of prejudice, stereotyping, discrimination, and hatred that presents itself as acts that do harm to other humans and perpetuate the cycle that marginalizes others who just want to live their life the best way they know how in the time that they've been given on this earth before their death sentence. Heavy. That's a heavy individual. The change I want to see must first begin in and with me. Oh, I'm a protest. Oh, I'm a speak up. And I'm going to come against injustice. And when something moves me the wrong way, I'm going to speak out on it. In my forum and in my own way. Not with um, egocentric thinking or social uh, social thinking. You know, doing what everybody thinking, what everybody else thinks. You have to be your own individual critical thinker. Look at why you do what you do. Look at where did that come from? Why am I the way I am? How did I get this way? And is this way beneficial to me being moving forward? Do I need to change to become a better person? If you say no, hey, hey, row your boat. Uh, pat yourself on the back and toot your pipe. That's you. I don't force anything on people that they don't want now in my older age. When I was younger, I was gung-ho. I used to tell people, you know, you got to do this. You should do this. You, no, no, no. You do what you want to do. But it behooves you to strive to be the best you that you can be. Because you're the only you that we're ever going to be introduced to in this world. Because you bring to this world what no one else brings. Like the case where the seven people were in an accident, a plane crash, if you will. And oh, not seven people, but a, a group of people. And seven survived. 
and they had to figure out how they were going to survive. And each one of them brought something to the table that was vital, significant to their survival. If that one person had not been allowed to bring their reference to the table, they would not have survived. Whether they used it or not, someone was able to uh, recall something similar or find some kind of way to modify what they were saying. We need each other. We may not like each other because I don't like a lot of people. (laughs) I love some individuals more than I should. I care about certain people and go beyond for other people because people have gone beyond for me. People have loved me when I was unlovable and intolerable and didn't give a damn and didn't care. So now I understand how to love, why to love, when to love, and where to love. So as we're dealing with racial harmony, I guess it comes down to being harmonious within yourself. If you're distorted and chaotic and warped within yourself, then you're going to agree. You're going to you're going to agree with the society that says kill those uh, outliers, uh, push aside those who are not as strong, defy those who are weak, stomp and walk over those who are less than you, push those aside and and uh, humiliate those who are less fortunate. That's a sad state of being for an individual, for a community, for a state, and for a nation. And I am not going to contribute to that type of nation. I'm I'm apolitical a lot of times because I'm an independent. You know, I go with what I feel. I go with my research, what I see. I have to go to, when I say what I feel, I don't mean just like, you know, how the wind, the wind blow and the feel good on your arm. You say, oh, the wind is good. No, I, I go by my vibes, my inner vibes and my research, you know, and that's what you have to do moving forward or that's what you should do. Well, that's what I do. Let's put it like that. I'm going to conclude with this. Thank you for listening to Strength from the Lions Den special episode. Very technically difficult, but nonetheless, we got it done. Here we go. This last, I'm out. Apostle John L. Solomon, the Lion of Bone Lions, Strength from the Lions Den. If you want to be on or you have a topic for this show, please inbox me at, on Facebook, John, L., John Solomon, or catch me on Instagram, King Solomon, some other numbers. Anyway, all right, I'm out. Listen to this. So interesting to me about the unconscious bias research is that this is not simply, you know, white people having biases against black people and Latinos. This operates across groups. This is a culture that we have learned that practices inequality. This is not um, simply animus between groups, but this is a way that we are socialized to treat people. The logical question is, what can we do? You can't be colorblind uh, because that means that you're not seeing the disparity and you're not trying to address it. We all have to see it, address it, make it real, uh, and try to resolve it as opposed to pretend it's not there. It's there. The goal, in my view, isn't to be blind to one another, but to see each other as we are, with our full range of experience, all of our baggage, as well as all the beauty that we bring, and still love one another, still care about each other. I don't want to say to the young kid who grew up in the hood, and who's being stopped and hounded by the police, I don't care if you're black. Of course I care. 
I care about you and your experience, and I see you as you are. The answer is being color conscious, not colorblind. It means confronting the truth about race and racism in this country, and it means asking the tough, honest questions about how the history of racism in America continues to shape the present. When you're a member of a dominant group, it's very easy, isn't it, to view the world that way, to view the world as an individual, to not recognize that other people are not leading simply individual lives, and neither are you. That's why people will say things like, well, I'm not white, I'm just Tim. <laughs> I'm just an individual. I'm just an American. Why can't we just all be, why can't you drop the hyphen? Because it's not your hyphen to drop, Jack, that's why. In other words, we need to have an awareness about how racism, racial conditioning, and prejudice have affected us as white folks. Unless we get a hold of that, we'll continue to go down the path of privilege and racism and inequality rather than connecting to a very different tradition in our own history, a tradition of white allyship, a tradition of white anti-racism. In addition to the typically pathetic way our history books address the contributions of people of color, very rarely is much attention paid to the average everyday white folks who stood up and opposed injustice. People like Will Campbell. Advanced units are already on duty on the grounds of Central High School. Colored people here in the South have got better schools than some of the white kids like it is. Let them go to their own school. Imagine how different the racial dialogue might feel for us if we knew of those white folks who opposed enslavement, who opposed segregation. Jeremiah Everts, John Fee, Helen Hunt Jackson, Sarah and Angelina Grimke, Robert Flannoy, Matilda Gage, Lydia Child. How helpful might it be for lessening our anxiety as whites and allowing us to embrace the multiracial future of America if we knew about the history of white anti-racism? Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.